This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. Today, I have with me Jim Jartris. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Um, I'm not sure how to introduce myself. I'm uh, originally of Greek origin. Um, I, I was born here. My parents were born here. All four of my grandparents were from Sparta. Um, I grew up in a military family. My dad was a career fighter pilot. So my, my hometown is Bitburg, Germany, Bitte ein Bit, you know, um, didn't really raise in a Greek community. So I don't speak Greek. I've been Orthodox my whole life. Um, professionally, I went to law school because I couldn't think of anything better to do when I got out of undergrad school, hated every minute of it. The went into the foreign service as it, the you know the U.S. Just diplomatic service was there for six and a half years, uh, serving in Mexico and then at the office of Soviet Union affairs and then in the office of the undersecretary for political affairs. Then I worked for 17 years uh, in the Republican leadership in the U.S. Senate, mostly dealing with foreign policy issues, but also some social issues like abortion and things like that. And then. Uh, after I retired from the federal government, I was an evil Washington lobbyist for several years, uh, and mostly working in international affairs in Russia, Ukraine, Serbia, places like that. And, uh, and now I'm a retired Virginia country gentleman in rural Virginia with my chickens and my fish pond and my big dog and lots of guns. <laughs> yeah, I, you, you have quite um, the illustrious background, I'll say, at least in the sense that you have a lot of experience in the i would say what happens in the in in behind the stage when it comes to politics and and especially foreign policy and that's particularly why i wanted to have you on is is that experience i think is one that uh is, is not recorded a lot in in the circles that uh we both find ourselves in um particularly the anti-interventionist circles uh, you'll see a lot of people who are very anti-foreign intervention, but a lot of them are just kind of analyzing the policy after effect. And I kind of want to talk about where the that, you know, behind the, the, the curtain, kind of peeling that back and seeing what happens, particularly with uh, neoconservatism, which is we both know very much dominates the ideology of driving foreign intervention. So first I wanted to talk about a little bit about how that is and, and really kind of just like identify that problem and what, what's going on behind this curtain with uh, neoconservatism and uh, foreign policy. 
Well, we could talk about that and what neoconservatism is, where it comes from, why it has such a grip on our policy. But I think in a way that sort of begs the question, because it sort of suggests that, okay, America is somehow fundamentally sound and we could just get rid of these bad people and their bad views. You know, uh, we could go back to George Washington's, uh, you know, uh, closing address about foreign entanglements and things of that sort. I'm, I'm afraid it's not that simple, that the corruption in what used to be our constitutional system is far more fundamental than just saying, let's get rid of the neocons. Um, that, um, and this is something I tried to emphasize in my talk at the Trad Forum in, uh, in uh, Berkeley, West Virginia recently, and also at the Ron Paul Institute a few weeks earlier, that I think we're seeing a, a, a crisis in, I hate to say Western civilization, I would say in in Christian civilization that has been going on for several decades, maybe centuries, really centuries, uh, the, growth, the growth of Gnosticism uh, within what had been a Christian civilization that takes specific forms over the years, whether it's Bolshevism or, you know, you know, and it's various permutations like Stalinism and Trotskyism or what we see now in America today. And um, I, I think, unfortunately, uh, we're now reaching a kind of a peak crisis that has both international long-term historical um, aspects to it, but also specifically American aspects to it in terms of the breakdown of our constitutional system from a from a confederal republic in the early decades to a federal democracy from, say, the Civil War until World War II, and then increasingly a consolidated administrative state, um, uh, demagogic state, uh, turning into a tyranny. And that's what we're really stuck with. So the, the neoconservatism is, I would say, part of that rot of, of what had once been a, um, a functioning constitutional and legal system uh, based on a, I use the dirty word wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, ethnos that founded this republic and now is itself becoming this, you know, uh, disestablished and basically falling apart uh so that's that's the real the real uh crux of the matter in my opinion uh, also i think we take into account the international situation which is now i think the crisis is finally becoming exis existential for the structure i just just described with the war in ukraine which of course is just a small kinetic part of what is really a global conflict really is world war three now between the american led or maybe I should say American in quotes, the global American empire, the gay, uh, that is now in a, uh, a struggle, life and death struggle, really, with the Eurasian powers led by Russia and China, which, um, you know, have their own pathologies, I'm sure, but are, let's say, fundamentally more normal than the kind of uh, um, Gnostic uh, ethos that you find in the, in the, in the gay. So, you know, we have to look at the big picture there. I would say the neocons as a as a departure from what we had hoped would be the Republicans institutions uh, of our founding fathers is one part of that, but not necessarily the biggest part mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, I I'm like how you, you kind of pivot from that, because you are definitely right. Uh, Neoconservatism is not the cause, but a symptom of the greater problem that that has happened here and um but i do i think i do i think we do see an evolution with neoconservatism specifically in foreign policy of this kind of gnostic um mm -hmm. as you as you describe it kind of takeover of the institutions 
Um, and and I, I think ne- neoconservatism has really ramped that up. And I kind of wanted to ask you of like where where you see that specifically, and and what was the change that that kind of occurred, um, and that really I think is described as a as a increase of intensity of the gr- greater problem that is happening. Well, you know, in 2007, the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, said that the exper- that the American uh, foreign policy is in many respects reminiscent of the experience of Bolshevism and Trotskyism. And uh, that's not a coincidence, because it's true. I mean, again, I don't know how much your viewers know about this, about the origins of the neoconservative movement in the American Communist Party and the split that occurred in the 1930s under a fellow named Max Schachmann and people who left uh, the, the Communist Party more or less in a Trotskyite direction, more in the direction of uh, a permanent revolution as opposed to Stalin's socialism in one country. And they went through a number of uh, permutations, uh, including something called Social Democrats USA. They even had their own Komsomol called YPSL, Young People's Socialist League. And you have Gene Kirkpatrick, uh, somebody who was uh, Reagan's uh, uh, UN ambassador, who's kind of an idol to many American conservatives, oh, American patriot, was a Yipsel. I mean, she grew up in this socialist Trotskyite movement. She became relatively sane uh, later in her life. I mean, you do find some of these people who are not bad people necessarily, uh, but they do have this notion of a permanent revolution uh, that they will that needs to be spread to the whole globe, except a set of uh, peace, progress, and socialism, as the Soviet Union had it. It's democracy, human rights, and free markets. And of course, their idea of what is democracy, what is human rights, what are free markets, which really means the rule of, uh, of you know these 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 financial institutions and you know uh, the the these uh, big investment uh, houses and so forth. You know, corporatocracy in a way is. Um, is something I don't think most people recognize as a as a departure from the founding principles of the American Republic, which, by the way, let's be honest, even then had their little kind of spice of enlightenment uh, progressivism in them that was uh, itself a departure from, the, let's say, the more uh, grounded aspects of English tradition, which I think really was the the root of the of the American. Uh, Republic. So, but let's also keep in mind too. It's just not the neo neo conservatism. We could say is a a specific ideology which ultimately derives from Trotskyism. But then you also have the liberal interventionists. You have the uh, the um, you know the, the Gene uh, excuse me the um, Madeleine Albright or so the Richard Holbrooks and people like that who have their own ideological pedigree. They may agree with the neo conservatives on what needs to be done in the rest of the world, but uh, they, they, they explain it from a somewhat different ideological uh, source. Then you have other people like, say, John Bolton, who was, uh, should not have been Trump's national security advisor, and somebody I've known, you know, not real well, but somewhat over the years, uh, who is not a neoconservative at all, even though he agrees with them on many policy prescriptions. Uh, not all of them, for example. He was actually uh, fairly reasonable on the question of Kosovo, and he's less of what I call a neoconservative and more what I would call a just a great power chauvinist. I mean, you know, less Leon Trotsky and more John Cecil Rhodes. Uh, in, in, and then you have other people in the, in, in, the, in the Borg, the deep state, whatever you will call it, that were characterized by some people as the Vulcans, who are simply uh, mouthpieces and water carriers for the military-industrial complex. 
uh, which remember, even in Eisenhower's time, when they called it the military industrial complex, originally he wanted to say military industrial congressional complex. And he was asked, why did you take that out? And he said, look, I couldn't take on Congress too. Uh, so, and now of course it goes well beyond, you know, what, what was, what was a horse and buggy uh, operation in Eisenhower's day is now a Formula One racer because it includes not only the military industrial congressional complex, but Wall Street and Hollywood and the advertising industry and big pharma and big data and a, is a huge complex of power comparable, I would say, to the Soviet nomenklatura that fell apart in 1991. And I think actually, you know, with any luck, you know, this is wooden uh, that... Um, that thing will be on its last legs fairly soon, given a shock to that system that is occurring now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think you you hit a lot of points that uh, I definitely think are important, especially when it comes to this kind of pipeline from Trotskyism to, to neoconservatism that a lot of people just seemingly are unaware of, even though it is pretty well documented um, and and how how very similar the two ideologies of neoconservatism and Trotskyism really are, um, but I I want to hone in too and get into this kind of the the very much the very the complex that exists that you just described that is now absorbed various other institutions, but I think has been mostly a a product of being able to use the the foreign policy the military industrial complex as a way to kind of spread out into the rest of society um i think as as we can see uh very much from the 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 way that like foreign policy has been downstream into domestic policy and and various so i i wanted to again kind of go into that in you know talk about these ideological motivations that are motivating them and mm -hmm. um, how they're using those motivations to in impact policy. Okay. Um, not sure what you want to start with that. I mean, there's one other element we did to add to it is just as the people in the Soviet nomenclatura uh, were doing well by doing good from their point of view because their paychecks and their, their feed bags depended on the success of the ideology and keeping it patched up even when it's falling apart. We have the same problem now with the Washington establishment and then they're, you know, they're outliers at Wall Street and Hollywood and so forth because they depend on, you know, all these McMansions in the Washington suburbs don't go up without a whole lot of money being poured into them. And so somebody once said that it's hard to convince somebody to, to know something when his paycheck depends on his not knowing it. So you know, you've got an awful lot of people whose uh, careers, whose fortunes, whose livelihoods really depend on this structure and on the furtherance of this ideology. So that's another thing we need to need to keep in mind. That and 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 that's the other problem too, uh, Peyton, is that uh, you know you know people are, are some people are banking on the likelihood that the um, Republicans will take control of the House of Reprehensibles in November and uh, maybe the Senate too. And, uh, you know, don't expect big things if that happens. If you look at, for example, the Republican leadership on the question of the, uh, the uh, Ukraine war, their only criticism is that we're not being militant enough. We're not sending enough weapons. We're not sending enough money. Yeah, there are dissenters on the right or the populist side of the Republican Party. You've got your, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greens and your, your Tom Massey's and a few other good people there. But uh, they are a distinct minority within the Republican Party, even with, with a few more populists and Trumpists being elected in the fall 
I don't expect the leadership to change. And, and the other sad thing is that there's virtually no opposition on the left. Even the hard left in this country, with very, very few exceptions, does not, uh, because I think they sense too that in a way it's their empire now. Uh, it, about 25 years ago, I wrote an article for Chronicles magazine called um, uh, Rainbow Fascism at Home and Abroad. Uh, where the you know the, there there is a distinct connection between all this woke ideology, including all the sexual pathologies, and American or again quotation mark American global imperialism. Uh, like I like to say, there's no trans Atlanticism without transgenderism. That if you look at the way we try to force these pride parades down everybody's throat all over Europe, we just saw recently these disorders in Belgrade, the capital of Serbia over the holding a big pride march there in georgia last year the bunch of fathers got out there and shut the thing down and trashed the pride offices and ripped down the rainbow flag Ooh, evil people um it, uh, you know there's a real question how much of this you know drag queen story hour uh grooming of children we're going to i because i wait we can't say that because you know the the uh, i didn't say that i didn't mean that okay that, we, we can excise that word i suppose uh <laughs> it, it, we're going we're going to tolerate because this is being done in our name. This is being done with our tax uh, uh, dollars. So when Patriarch Kirill says, a lot of it boils down to, never mind all that, will you have a pride parade or not? He's absolutely right about that. It's, in other words, you know, I remember there were a lot of people saying during this, was this new Cold War with Russia was, was starting to grow. Well, this is very different from the first Cold War because the first Cold War was ideological and this one is not. This is just a turf war. That's not true. This one is very ideological, except we're now the Soviet Union, and instead of red, it's rainbow. Yeah, no, I, I certainly agree, and I'm actually glad you touched on this point, because I think a lot of people, when they hear neoconservatism because of the word conservative in it, and then when they think about this, you know, foreign policy structure that exists and, and um, how it downstream into the rest of our society. They think of it as, as very right wing. They think of it on the right. But I, I think is what you're showing is, is that's definitely not the case. And, and I definitely want to get into that a little more about um, kind of the, the specific things we're doing with this power abroad, not just in, in direct foreign intervention, but I've, I've seen even diplomatically that I, I think it very much shows a left wing tint in this this left wing ideology that we think that is, you know, grabbing a hold of our institutions ever, ever tightly. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's one of the sad things about uh, American conservatives, such as they are is that a lot of uh, people on the right in the United States, or a lot of populists on the right even, will say, um, well, I can see what the federal government's up to. I can see the surveillance state. I can see the cancel culture. I can see what the IRS is up to. And they, they understand that the federal government or a way that's been perverted uh, is a threat to their traditional liberties as American and a, and a fundamental distortion of our constitutional order but then, because they don't know much about the outside world, they assume it's all mom and apple pie. That, oh, America's out there standing for democracy and freedom. No, actually, they're doing the same thing abroad as they're doing at home. And that they stand for the same values abroad as they do at home, which are not the values most Americans would actually share. But because it's being done in America's name and under the American flag, it's sort of... It's sort of um, 
stirs their patriotic juices in their heart, you know, saying, uh, stand up for America, you know, number one, we're exceptional and all that stuff. And, and I can't, I, it's hard to explain how terribly misplaced this is, is that it's not the America, it's not your mom and dad's America. It's not mom and apple pie. It's George Soros's America. It's uh, it's Anthony Blinken's America. It's uh, Drag Queen Story Hour America. That's the America we're foisting on the rest of the world. And because um, look, I don't. You know, a lot of people like to beat up on Americans because that we really don't know much about the rest of the world. I remember when the Ukraine crisis first erupted. This latest Ukraine crisis in 2014. There was a poll done about showing showing uh, a blank map of uh, of Eurasia. And asking people to identify where Ukraine is on that map, and only like a quarter of the people could he get even anywhere near where Ukraine actually is. Some of them put it in the middle of the United States. Some of them put it out in the middle of the ocean somewhere. But what was interesting is the ones who were farthest from where Ukraine actually was were the ones who were most adamant that we needed to do something about it. And now that doesn't mean Americans are stupid. Uh, a lot of them don't know about these things. But that's partly because we are big country we do have you know a focus i think a, a lot of americans are very practical they focus on their you know their kids and their schools and their work and their you know their livelihood and their communities and and they're very very active and i think very good people in that focus but that that means that their patriotism can be abused the people who are running our country who are not really patriots in any sense of the world word can manipulate them they can say we're going on this great crusade to defend democracy. Oh, yo, Saddam Hussein is a threat. Milosevic is a threat. The Iranians are a threat. Uh, the Russians and the Chinese, they're a threat. And people eat it up because they don't really know anything about these things. And they believe that our leaders are patriots, even though they can kind of see through it when it, 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 it it's a matter of domestic policy. So it's a, it's a real disconnect in my mind. I don't see any solution to it, to tell the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think that there definitely is a problem of, of how do we fix this. Uh, there's definitely a lot of people trying to answer that question and trying to uh, put that in. But I, I, I do agree that it, it is very hard to see one right now uh, because it is so deeply enrooted in our society and, and, and kind of has its tentacles on everything. As we've kind of explained, but I, I think you you brought up a very good point about how um, you know Americans have this very patriotic sense about them that uh, is very easily exploitable, and, and they use that to to their advantage. And I think that particularly what we we see is is that Americans don't really care about this issue because they haven't really seen it affecting them at home they're they're seeing it now they just don't know that it, it comes from this 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 apparatus that we're talking about and um i'm kind of interested to to get your take and and see what you think about it about if that really can be shown to people and how we would do that and explain that to people that you know that it's it's all downstream from this I, I don't really know. Uh, you're asking a very, very American question because <laughs> Americans like to think that everything in the world is a problem and all problems have solutions. So all we have to do is think about what the solution to the problem is. And I think a lot of people will look at this and say, well, we need to get people mobilized. We need to get the people aware and then somehow the problem will be fixed. Well, how is it going to get fixed? If the constitutional system is, is in effect 
I would say not only perverted, but really not functional at this point. Well, we'll, we'll form a new party. Well, uh, good luck with that. I mean, the, the duopoly of the Republicans and the Democrats control the structure of our elections as, as tightly and as uh, ir 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 irrevocably as the single party the Soviet Union did back in its day. It simply isn't going to happen. It, it, look, even, and I'm not an advocate of the parliamentary system, but even in Europe, you know, you, you look at it, maybe the Fratelli d'Italia will be elected in Italy this coming Sunday. This is a, a party that was at 4% in the last election and may actually take power. Something like that simply can't happen under the American system. Um, you know, Trump tried to sort of take over the Republican Party and turn it into a populist, nationalist party and 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 it has some success at the grassroots level, but not at the leadership level. Uh, whether will he, will he be able to finish that that takeover in 2024? I'm very very skeptical. If any change could be made within the electoral system, it would have to be within the takeover of one of the two parties. Obviously, the Democratic Party is hopeless. The Republican Party is almost almost hopeless. So you're looking at a very very dim prospect that we can vote our way out of this or come up with a solution through the ordinary means. My sense is, is that nothing of significance will happen until we reach some kind of a collapse comparable to what the Soviet Union went through starting in 1991. Uh, and that once all the dust settles and once, you know, things get very ugly here at home for a while, very hungry here at home for a while. You know, the kind of things, as I say, that we're used to happening to other people in other countries far away that will happen here. Then we'll see what comes out of the ashes, if anything viable can come from it, which is not a given, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you, you've definitely touched on something that uh, I have been thinking about a lot, and that is um, this kind of, Sovietization of America. I did an episode with uh, Yuri Molstev um, previously about this very subject. But yeah, I, I think we're very much something that underpinned um, neoconservatism's kind of takeover of this foreign policy apparatus and, and intensifying the, the things we were already seeing is that it, it's kind of made the United mm -hmm. States go on the same course and trajectory of the Soviet Union. Um, there's a quote, I don't remember who said it, but um, they said, in trying to destroy the Soviet Union, we became more like it. And uh, I think that's been a common feature of what we've talked about today is that we've just kind of seen the Soviet or um, the American polity and, and, and even society at large just Sovietize and become more and more like it. And you seem to be intent that uh, that's kind of we're going down the exact same path and it's going to end the same way. So I kind of wanted to ask, you know, if we are to get to this situation where we have a collapse situation, I mean, do you do you foresee in any way that like something good could come out of it? What would that look like? And how can we learn from the own the Soviet Union's own fall and now the Russian Federation that we have out of it? Yeah, um, yeah. Somebody once said too uh, that what began in Russia will end in America. Uh, what began in Russia Russia a hundred years ago will end in America. Because I, as I say, I think this is not just an American crisis; it's a crisis in the in a, a historic crisis like, comparable to you know the Renaissance of the Ref Reformation. Or the Enlightenment, that the um, or the Benightment, as it's better called, uh, is is that um, the 
the crisis of, of European Christian civilization that had been building for years but reached the critical point in 1914 when that civilization decided to cut each other's guts out and then the crazies took over as a result of that war and we're really it's some ways still living in the wreckage of World War One uh, is is that um, that um, the, the, the America will become the focus of that much larger crisis that's been going on for some time. The question is, can we come out of it the same way that Russia came out of it after three generations? Um, you know, I, I like to say that we're living in a woke revolution that still doesn't have its Lenin and we still don't have, don't have our Franco or our Kolchak. I mean, who is going to lead a resistance? There's a couple of ways this could go. One is the woke regime somehow manages to hold on internationally and hold on domestically and force America under the waves and we're never seen again. That's, that's what I would have expected, by the way, before the Russians began their operation in Ukraine. The other one is that somehow... They managed to beat Eurasia, keep the empire on top, and then keep the lid on at home as well. I think that's not so likely, but it's it's possible. The other, the other possibility is, as I say, everything collapses, and then what comes out of the ashes, sort of the way Russia did after the collapse of the Soviet Union. That's where I also worry, though, because, and this gets back to the ethnic question. You know, the Russians are what you call the state-building ethnos the state building people in in the in the in in russia even in the russian federation or for that matter the soviet union or the, the russian empire before that just like the french are within france and so on and so forth um the american state building ethnos the state the state uh, state building nation are again those people we used to call wasps people of european primarily british primarily english origin that's why we're speaking english here right uh, those are the people that wrote the Constitution. Those are the people whose values underlay our whole system of law and order, you know, due process, presumption of innocence, you know, uh, you know, all those things that are, you know, distinctly Anglo-Saxon. Look, I can remember when I was a kid, our American history book began with the Magna Carta. I mean, the whole idea was the whole English experience was then transferred to North America and took a specific form here. Um, that's all gone. You know, Russians after 70 years still knew they were Russians. Poles, Hungarians, and, and the rest of them after, you know, shorter decades, you know, 40, 50 years, still knew they were Poles, Hungarians, Bulgarians, whatever. Do Americans still know that they are Americans? You know, Europeans, Christians, English-speaking people who are the core of this country, are they have, have they been so degraded by the demonization of them as people, as you know, you know, racist, anglophones, nativists, and xenophobes. Yeah, by the way, yeah, in other words, I guess the question for me is, if America comes crashing down like the Soviet Union did, will the core American ethnos, you know, English-speaking, uh, European, Christian Americans, still have enough sense of who they are as Americans to uh, recover something of their national dignity in the way that Russia did or Poles have or Hungarians have and other people in the former communist countries uh, or will is that so far gone now that th they'll have no consciousness other than either the local communities their families or something like that or maybe well I don't I, I, I'm just a Christian that's how I define myself or I'm, I'm just white that's how I define myself I don't think that's enough that's not enough for an ethnos that's not enough for a viable uh, recovery as a state 
or as a, as, or as a social order once everything comes crashing down. I could be wrong about all that, but that's, that's what my concern would be going into this mess, that there is not enough self-awareness of the American people to recover after such a crash as there was in the communist countries, which ironically, by the way, the national identities of the former communist nations is actually stronger than what you find in Western Europe. It seems that communism was less corrosive of the uh, the self-awareness and identity of the nations of Eastern Europe than consumerism and, and uh, so-called free market and feminism and LGBT and all that nonsense has been in the Western part of Europe. And that's one reason when you look at polls on issues like, you know, obviously sexual matters and things like that, the people in former communist countries are much more conservative than the people in Western Europe are, or even when in a country like Germany, East Germany is much more conservative than West Germany is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's certainly true. And, and we kind of saw a pushback from former Soviet states in um, this like rejection of, of, of left-wing ideology after communism. And I think the real question is, is are we going to say the same pushback here, um, even though it's a very different kind of, of, of left-wing engineering that we're now seeing um, with America? And I think you're definitely right that um, there's there's going to be need some like reclaiming of, of, of this ethno... Um, that 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 has been lost in in our very multicultural, multi ethnic, mm-hmm. um, but single polity yeah. society. And the question, and 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 the and the and the question is, is there enough of it left for that recovery to take place? Maybe it doesn't. I mean, you know, we talk about ethnogenesis. How does a nation come into being? Maybe we also have to think about ethnothanatos. How does a nation cease to be? Mm-hmm. There, you know, where are the where are the Hittites today? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I precisely, I, and and I definitely agree. And I think America has very much kind of lost an identity, and I think that's intentional. And I think that's part of the the whole ideology. And that and, and, so, and, and so and so, yeah, and such identity as does exist is so overwhelmingly civic. That is, if you ask Americans what makes us America, well, democracy, the Constitution, and all that sort of thing. And once that's all gone, once the facade of that, which I, I think it is effectively gone, but once it's clear to everybody it's gone, what do they fall back on in terms of identity? Because the the Constitution did not create America. America created the Constitution. Read the preamble. You know, we, we the people who wrote the Constitution, uh, or uh, what is it, uh, ordained this Constitution for ourselves and our, and our, uh, secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. It was, it was real live flesh and blood people said we need a constitution constitution didn't create the americans the question is can americans identify themselves once they don't have a constitution anymore i don't know yeah yeah and i i think that's certainly a a, a problem uh that we're going to face in the future and one i i i certainly don't have an answer to um but hopefully we can we can kind of figure it out before it's too late um but i wanted to thank you so much for coming on and now i wanted to give you the floor uh to promote anything to my audience that you think they need to hear um any work you have going on anything that you you would like them to know about well i should tell the truth i don't have any work going on uh, I've, I've been much as possible tried to uh, retire from 
public life and the big issues of the world. You know, I have appeared in a couple places because I've been asked to and have done so against my better judgment. If I had any sense, I'd be keeping my head down and my mouth shut, but I've never been good at that. I have tried to focus more on local uh, politics and also on things like, you know, my chickens and my fish and all that kind of stuff and my family and my grandkids. Um, I, I do, uh, at least, I, I, do, I am uh, pretty active on Twitter, again, again, against my better judgment, at Jim Jatras. So be sure to visit me there if you want to, you know, interact. And, you know, I, I try to be responsive on an individual basis with people as much as possible. Um, I and One of my f areas of focus is, of course, also Orthodox Christianity. And I do try to... Um, uh, say what I can in support of the Orthodox faith, um, you know, and sometimes in political polemical terms with, uh, you know, people in the Roman Catholic or the Protestant uh, confessions or non-Christian confessions or atheists and evolutionists and all sorts of people. And, um, you know, and I do think that's very important. And, and I guess in my own mind, as somebody who's not of founding American stock, but is kind of an America, Americanoid by assimilation, you say, well, how does orthodoxy comport with all of this stuff we say about Americans, especially since I go to a parish that's about 80% ethnic Americans, if I can use that expression, and, and only minority, you know, Greeks and Russians and Serbs and Romanians and other such. Um, I, I like to th think, I like to think, and maybe this is just a little bit of myth-making or nostalgia on my part, that there is something fundamentally compatible uh, between orthodoxy and America's roots in the sense that, well, America is an outgrowth of, of uh, English civilization and English civilization is based on the Anglo-Saxons and before Hastings, uh, you know, that was an orthodox country and, uh, you know, even Thomas Jefferson, who was a notorious free thinker when it came to religion, uh, thought that America should be an expression of that core Anglo-Saxon identity and I'm, I'm very supportive of that concept. So to the extent to which Orthodoxy is at the root of our Christian European civilization, as I believe it is, before the you know the split that occurred in the 11th century and the Reformation and all that. I like to think that there is something you know deep at the root of what makes us tick as Americans in Orthodoxy, as as I believe the authentic uh, expression of the Apostolic tradition, and the more Americans that are attracted to Orthodoxy. I hope that will prepare them for the trials that are to come, uh, that they will be, you know, not only uh, uh, baptized into the body of Christ as he is authentically and with the Holy Spirit, but that will equip them for the trials that are to come, which also has, I believe, has a civic side of things too. And, you know, one, one of our problems, I think, in America today is, especially those who are Christians, is that you know there's kind of a churchy mentality all i have to do is pray more and be a better christian and god will see me through it <clears throat> well you know we all know the story about the the man who was uh caught in the flood and you know that he ignored the helicopter ignored the car ignored the boat and then when he drowned he said god why didn't you save me and god said why didn't i sent you the boat i sent you the car i sent you the helicopter and you said no what do you mean i didn't save you so, uh, you know, I think that we need to understand that we are co-workers regarded, you know, a synergy in the biblical language and that we have uh, a role in the world as uh, 
as fathers and mothers and citizens and, and, and patriots that we need to be prepared to do our part in the world uh, and that we just don't you know, put our head in the clouds and say, well, God's going to do it all. God empowers us to do what is right in the world uh, as, as, as Christians, and that has a, a broader responsibility to other people as well. And by the way, to our country, uh, I think patriotism, to my mind, is part of honor thy father and thy mother. Mm-hmm. Who gave birth to us? What does nation mean? Not you, to be born. That our homeland, the people we identify with by birth or by adoption, is our family, and we have a duty to them. Uh, you know, what's lacking so much in the world today isn't so much uh, the sacerdotium, the church, it's the imperium. Where is where is the civic life in, informed by a Christian conscience? conscience? And I mm-hmm. think that's something we need to bear in mind as well. Yeah, I, de- I definitely agree, and, and I'm glad you add added that in and in this time and um very much agree and and echo that sentiment um but i wanted to thank you again for coming on and very much appreciate you uh you taking the time and everything uh to talk about these very important things and um i want to thank my audience again for watching and and hope to see you guys next time thank you for the opportunity We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank Thank you. you. Now watch this drive.